All right, fourth and fifth graders, you may go to your class at this time if you're in the fourth and fifth grade. If you're new here in the fourth and fifth grade, just follow the herd. <laughs> just follow all those kids that are going, good grief. Man, that's a lot of fourth and fifth graders. All right, for the rest of us, we're going to begin where we left off last week. We're in the middle of a series called The Cost of Living. Just by way of a refresher, we began the very first week of January 2010, taking a look back at 2009 and all the things that God did here at the Livingstones Church, to which we are very thankful for and give Him all the glory and praise in the midst of it. And at the same time, we took a look at 2010 and where we think God is calling us by way of vision and direction. The following week, then the next week, the second week of of 2010, we put a cost behind our vision, meaning this. We kind of took a Sunday to talk about the budget here at the Livingstones Church and talk about if God is calling us in this direction, then this is how much we anticipate it calling, co- costing because vision costs money. And so you'll remember in that week, we talked about three numbers, $5, $9, and $12 were the three numbers. And what we did is we set the average giving in 2009 as this is where we start off the way of budgeting for 2010. Having said that, there are three phases of vision that we would like to move in in 2010. In order for that to happen, there need to be some responsiveness by way of the Livingstones Church. And so what we discovered is if every all-in family unit here at the Livingstones Church gave $5 more in 2010 than they did in 2009, then we would be able to do things like hire a full-time children's minister, pave our parking lot, (laughs) which... You'll get it later. I mean, there's sinkholes, but I mean, and we were able to fully fund all of the ministry leaders' budgets that they requested for 2010. And then we went on to say phase two, and we gave a list of things on phase two and said that would be $9 more per family unit uh, compared to 2009 to 2010. And finally, the third phase uh, was uh, my Mercedes and the jacuzzi. We want to put it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally kidding. Just kidding, I drive a 1996 hand-me-down Toyota Camry with 230,000 miles. Okay. $12 was the last uh, figure, and so we kind of offered that. And I just want you to, especially the first time here, we do not talk about money much. We aren't all into gold-plated things. Just go take a look at our bathrooms. You'll know we're down to earth. We kind of roll on the cheap side. But last week, we began to take a shift and not so much talking about money and giving to the Livingstones Church, but talking about money by way of an issue of discipleship. So if you're like, oh, great, we came to church, they're talking about money. It's going to be all right. We're going to be all right. Uh, It is an aspect of discipleship by way of following after Jesus. And so last week, we talked about if Jesus were to sit down with you face to face and talk about money and what it means to call him Lord and follow after him, especially by way of views of money, I think the very first thing he would give to us, and this is what we talked about last week, the first... Is that sun coming through? Do you see that? Oh, see, it's going to be a good sermon now. Look at this. We've got our suns on, and, and we'll get out of here quick because the sun is out. we got it before it goes away. Uh, and so the very first thing that I think Jesus would say to us is this. Here's what you need to know about money. It isn't yours. It belongs to God. God is the owner. And I know that rubs against us because we're thinking to ourselves, no, actually, I remember working all last week, and when I got that check, I remember thinking, I deserve every penny of that. And we right, the sweat of our brow, we can make all sorts of, but Jesus comes and says, I know, I know, I know. But in the end, it all belongs to God. Your bank account, your house, your car, your kids, all of those are truly the owned by God. And what Jesus would have us know is he's simply entrusting them to us for a temporary period of time to be good managers, good stewards. So that's the point. We talked about a, make the guy who owned a McDonald's versus a manager of a McDonald's. That's the illustration we used last week. It's simply that. 
God owns everything. We're just to be managers and stewards of it. And all of Jesus' parables have this concept in mind. God's the owner, and he entrusts things to servants. But the end of Jesus' parables always has the owner coming back to look at the books. The owner always shows up and wants to know, what have you done as a faithful servant, as a faithful manager, as a faithful steward with my money? And so there's sort of a reckoning in terms of the accounts. And like, likewise, someday God is going to ask of us, what did you do with my money, with my possessions, with my things? Did you spend it all on yourself, on your cost of living, on your standard of living, on your debt, on your toys, on your bills? Was there anything dedicated and devoted by way of a line item to the kingdom of God and to the purposes of Jesus Christ? And it's not complicated. It's down to earth. It's very practical. It means this. You should go home and take a look at your personal budget. And in the end, when you're looking at that personal budget, ask yourself, where is the line item that is dedicated to the kingdom of God and to the purposes of Jesus? And if you don't have one, you should go make one. Because it all belongs to God and is just entrusting it to us as faithful managers and stewards. And so Jesus has a lot to say about money. And even though I don't care to talk about money a whole lot and feel a little weird about it, Jesus talks about it all the time, more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. And this morning, one of the things I want us to know is Jesus will tell us that how we think about money and use money will be a reflection of the condition of our hearts. Now think about it for a moment. That how we use money, how we think about money is a reflection of the condition of our hearts. This is how Jesus says it very explicitly. Luke chapter 12 verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus knows they're intertwined, and we know they're in, it's intertwined because we feel the tension anytime somebody gets up and starts talking about money. We feel it. It's sort of that low-lying, oh, we're talking about money, because we know it's so intertwined with who we are as a person and with our hearts that anytime somebody puts their finger on it, it feels sensitive. And I think the reason why it feels so sensitive and the intertwining of money and heart are so linked together because my experience in pastoral ministry here in this place and just my own life personally, I'm telling you, money has massive impact. I mean, did you know the number one cause of divorce is over money? I mean, so there's other factors, but marriages are injured and hurt more often than not because of the issues of money. And I'm telling you, my experience here is that when it comes to brokenness and shame and mismanagement of money, it has a massive impact when it comes to marriages. How many of you have ever felt the strained relationships because of money? Anyone here ever loaned a friend a bunch of money? Anyone that? And never got it back? And what happened? So it got weird, didn't it? And you didn't know, should I ask for it? But we're friends, and if I ask for it, it feels weird. Money like that kind of changes things, and it shifts things, and it feels real tense. And the reason why is because money and heart are intertwined. Have anyone ever heard of or been in the situation where parents maybe pass away, and then it's time for the reading of the will, and the siblings are all there in the lawyer's office, and they read the will, and what happens next? All hell breaks loose because so-and-so got this and I was supposed to get that. And next thing you know, I'm not talking to so-and-so anymore. And it's chaos. Why? Because money cuts to the very heart of who we are. And it feels so personal. And Jesus knows this. That's why he says, money is a big deal. If you're going to follow after me, if you're going to confess me as Lord, then money will have an impact on discipleship. It could be the child support payments you're still fighting over. It could be a partner that you went into business with that you feel now has mismanaged your collective investments. It could be about a boss who's not paying you what you think you should rightfully deserve, and I'm on your side. I just want you to know, I am on your side. It could be the fights that go on every week in your household as you and your spouse have two totally different money management philosophies, right? One of you probably is more loose in terms of spending. The other one's a lot more frugal and just creates all sorts of conflict. I have heard stories here of literal anxiety attacks and panic attacks and great stress because of money. 
And it's interesting, it affects people who have no money, and it affects people who have lots of money. It seems to be a common characteristic. There's a lot of secret shame that surrounds money. And there's secrecy about it. And, and that's why you don't hear things like this very often. Like you wouldn't come in this morning, hey, what'd you do this week? And how'd your weekend go? Oh, wow, I filed bankruptcy. I mean, you don't hear that out loud, right? Secret shit. We don't, we don't say those things out loud. You never call your friends and say, hey, I'm going over my credit card statements. Why don't you guys come on over? We can read it together. I mean, there's something about money that we want it to be secret. It's what uh, Jeff was talking about. He's stealing my sermon during communion. Did you hear that? He's like, stealing my sermon. There's a secrecy, a taboo to it. And I'm telling you, anytime something becomes a taboo, you can bet that there's an idol just waiting nearby. That's what happens with things that are taboo. And so Jesus, trying to alleviate secrecy and taboo, just w- throws it wide open and says, yes, if you're going to follow after me, you're going to have to go through this idea of how money affects discipleship. Because it touches a real-life nerve. And so putting together money and heart and how they kind of are intertwined, Jesus one day illustrates that by this story. It's in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Let me read it to you. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, isn't that interesting? Just stop there for a moment. What is Jesus doing? He's watching people give. Isn't that so awkward? Wouldn't that feel awkward? It'd be like one of you, like if the tray goes by later, you're all like, what do you do? What do you give? I mean, wouldn't that feel weird? It's like, dude, what do you, that's my check. I mean, no, really, what's your check? I mean, wouldn't that feel weird? That's what Jesus is doing. He is sitting there watching people give. I just find that interesting. This is what happens. Well, rich people, they come along, they're just throwing lots of money in, right? The rich came and threw a large amount of money, and you can imagine the scene as it was happening. Ta-da! I mean, here's what I give. I give a lot. But then I don't know, we're a poor widow, and I promise you, nobody was noticing. She probably looked poor. And in it, nobody was really noticing, nobody really cared what she put in. But it says that a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only, listen to this, a fraction of a penny. A fra- not even a penny, like a fraction of a penny. A penny. If there's a penny in the parking lot just lying there, how many of you would bend over and pick it up? How many of you would say, I'm just not, just not worth my time? See, I'm with the not worth my time, but maybe that's my problem. So anyhow, it's not even worth a fraction of a penny. And this is what happens next. Calling his disciples to him, to Jesus, Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Say what? That wasn't in there, brother. That's just Sam's response. I mean, really, we saw the rich people. They put in a lot of money. She put in a fraction of a penny, and she put in more than anybody else. See, Jesus is going to the heart. Everybody else ignored this woman. Nobody else paid attention. Nobody thought what she was doing was significant. It was inconsequential in every way except for to Jesus who knows this woman's heart. And when he sees it, he highlights it and puts it out on display to say she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything she had to live on in contrast to the others who they were giving out of their wealth. And so her act, while maybe unimpressive to the rest of us, to God was profound because it revealed who she was. It revealed the condition of her heart. It was a reflection of her heart. And so Jesus points it out and to illustrate this teaching, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be also. Money tells us a lot about somebody's heart. It tells us if someone is sacrificial. The way you use money will tell us whether or not you're compassionate. It will tell us what you think is important and what it is that you think is not important. It will tell us whether you're wise or unwise, whether you're generous or you're self-centered. It will tell us whether you're a person who's content or whether you're greedy. It will give us a glimpse into whether you're a frugal kind of person or you live beyond your means. 
And so what happens is our checkbook in the end reveals a lot about us. They become fingerprints of priority. And so Jesus, I think, would then have, if this is the case, with Jesus saying, no, really, this matters. Heart matters. Money matters as they're intertwined. Then I think the next question we would have if we're trying to be good disciples of Jesus is this. Okay, Jesus, if money is a reflection of our hearts, what should we do with money that reflects your heart? That seems like a fair question, right? If we're going to be following after Jesus, then the next question would be, if, if money is a reflection of our hearts, what should we do with money that's a reflection of your heart? And in that, I think Jesus would give us a second principle, right? Last week, principle number one, it all belongs to God. He's just entrusting it to you. Here's principle number two. I think Jesus' next lesson to us would be this. Money should reflect that God is the most important thing in your life and take priority over everything else. Like when we take a look at your checkbook or your bank account or whatever it is, it should reflect that God is the most important thing in your life and take priority over everything else. Now, hang with me for just a moment. What that means is God comes first, even with money. Now, I'm not saying that he expects you to spend more on him than anything else in your life. What's interesting to me, as you look through the thousands of years by which God's people have lived faithfully to God, never once does he ever say to them, when you do your personal budgets, I want the largest line item to be devoted to me. He never does that, right? Which is amazing, because he surely deserves it if he wants it. I mean, he is God. He should be able to say, you should spend more money on me, technically speaking, than anything else in your life. But he never does that. He never asks of his people that by way of quantity, they spend more on him than anything else. It's a hard issue, though. But in the end, here is what God does ask of his people. That when you use money, and you think about money, and you use money, it should reflect that he comes first. So let's talk about what that means. What does that look like? There's a word in the Bible that's used often. It's called first fruits. We don't use that language much because most of us aren't farmers. Any farmers in the house today? See, that's why I figured. We don't have a bunch of fruit trees. That's how I mean, we just we don't speak this language. So let's talk about this for a moment. What God is asking for is the first fruits. And what that means is what God is asking for is the first and the best by way of priority. And so let me read you a few passages in the Bible that talks about the idea of first fruits. Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. God is asking for in this passage first fruits, the first and the best. This is what it means to say first fruits. Or Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 35. The people in response to God are saying this. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with the substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then there's a promise attached to it. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And there's so many passages in the book of Leviticus, I just don't have time to read them all, that talk about this concept that God wants first and best. He wants in money and possessions to be known as the greatest priority in our life above all, everything else. And so Jesus is calling us with our checkbooks and in our hearts to reflect that God is the most important thing in our life. He is the greatest thing in our life. He is the priority of our life. And in that, he wants first fruits. First fruits is a heart attitude. A first fruits heart acknowledges everything we have is because of God. A first fruits heart demonstrates that God is the most important thing in life. A first fruits heart is an act of faith that says, I trust you, God, to such a degree that I will give you first priority and the best of what I have and not be anxious about how I'm going to survive. It's an act of faith. Giving God first fruits allows our hearts to be free from the idol idolatrous pull of money 
And it makes sure that we deny everything first allegiance in our life except God, including the Visa Company. How many of you like leftovers? Anyone here like leftovers? Just by way of leftovers? And I there's a big leftover crowd too. I don't like leftovers. Like there's a few things like chili, lasagna, just a couple items that I'll eat kind of leftover. I'm trying to do better in 2010, this whole financial thing. I'm trying to do better with money, so I need to eat better, left, more leftovers. Uh, but I just don't care for it a lot. But I, that's great for those of you who love leftovers. You can ask Kelly, like, we get one more shot and then I'm done. That's it. I can't do this anymore. But here's what I've discovered about God, at least in terms of the scriptures. He hates leftovers. He's just not a leftover kind of a God. In fact, anytime anyone tries to offer him leftovers, he doesn't find it very appetizing or very pleasing. God has always thought of himself, and he's God so he can, he has always thought of himself as deserving the first and the best, not the things that were left over. Because that's what leftovers are, right? We kind of ate our fill, and then whatever was left, we didn't get done. We kind of put in that little Tupperware that goes to the back of the fridge that sits there for three weeks until blue mold's all over, and it stinks up the house. you got to figure, where's that coming from? Somebody else, you know, anyone else live like this at times? Open the fridge door, you're like, what is that? And oh, it's way in the back. God has never liked that. Just not a big leftover kind of a God. He has always preferred the first and the best. And any time anyone ever tries to give to them the scraps of their belongings, the scraps of their possessions, the scraps of their money, he always in the end goes, yeah, I'm just not into that. Let me read you a story. It's from the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. Now, Malachi has a lot to say about our hearts and giving and, those, you know, and money and possessions. But in Malachi chapter 1, God through the prophet Malachi gives a very stern rebuke to his people who are trying to offer to God the leftovers. Here's what it says, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. This is just, in general, the principle. Son honors the father and the servant the master. God says, if I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. Now see, God's upset. You hear that? Do you hear the tone? He's upset. A son honors the father. If I'm not a father, where's my honor? A servant honors the master. If I'm the master, where's my respect? And then he looks at the priest and says, you're defiling my name. Well, how are they doing this? Because this is the natural question they would ask. Well, how are we defiling your name? That's what they ask next. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Verse 7, you've placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring, now this is what they're bringing, Blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to the governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, do you see what's happening? This isn't a, a PETA message. This is God saying, I deserve the first and the best. And what are they bringing to God? The blind, the crippled, the lame, the animals that nobody wants the animals that are of hardly any use to them, that they wouldn't want to provide offspring because they'll probably be weak and they won't make it. Like, and so what's happening is the people of Israel are keeping for themselves the best. They're keeping for themselves the healthiest animals. And what does God get? The scraps, the leftovers. To which God is seeing this and thinking, that's what I'm worth to you? That's how much you honor me? That's how much you respect me? I get your blind, your crippled, your lame. I get the scraps of your flocks? Try giving that to the governor and see how he likes it. I am God, for goodness sake. Then he goes on, he says, verse 9, Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 
Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. That's referring to the sacrifices. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept this offering from your hands. My name, and here God's getting defense about his, his own being, who he is. Just Listen, my name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Whew. That's harsh, isn't it? And there's something that makes you go, Whoo. See, God understands the nature and power behind money and possessions. He recognizes it's attached to our heart. That's why when Jesus says... Look at the treasure, where you put your treasure, it will be a sign of where your heart is as well. And when we offer up to God the scraps of our lives, the leftovers of our lives, it is a demonstration that we are not following after Jesus in the manner that he's calling us to follow after him. That God doesn't want from us. And we know this to be true in every other, rela- really, in every other relationship in our life that's significant. We know this to be true. If you were to give to your spouse the leftovers of your time, your priority, your energy, your attention, how is that going to go over long term? Eventually your spouse is going to go, yeah, I don't like that. Get off of Facebook and pay attention to me, right? I mean, hypothetically speaking. If you're like spending all of your time at work and never around, I mean, with your children, if you give them the scraps of who you are and the scraps of your time, that's how you live your life as a father or as a, or as a mother, you know long term, in the end, it will reflect to your kids that they just really aren't that important to you. This is true in every significant relationship we have, including the one we have with God. If we give him the scraps of what we have left or the leftovers of what we have left, we really don't want anyhow. It is a reflection that God is not the priority that he thinks he is rightfully entitled to be. He isn't asking for the most. He's asking for the first. It is asking for the best. He isn't asking for the greatest amount. He is just saying in our heart, as we look at God, as we think about God, as we even think about our money, how it pertains to God, that it reveals that the condition of our heart is He really is top priority. And it has never worked throughout the history of God's people to give Him the scraps. And there's other stories we could read from the Bible that talk about and demonstrate and illustrate this. Cain and Abel, just one of the earliest ones in the book of Genesis. What's that all about? Well, Abel offered a sacrifice to God, and it was pleasing to God, and Cain offered him the scraps, and God didn't like it. Or you've got Nadab and Abihu, things didn't work out well for him. Or in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. It's a story in the book of Acts where this couple sold some property and said they gave all of it to the cause of the apostles in the church, but they really held some back. And they were lying. They were just lying like God wasn't going to hear it. You know what God did? Struck them dead. Dead. That's why New Testament Christianity, it's all right to a point, but uh, we don't be struck dead. God wants you to consider him first. And that if we're going to follow after Jesus, that we think of him as worthy of the very best of all that we are and have. And anything short of that, then, is not what God calls us to. The following Jesus and calling him Lord means we have sworn our allegiance to God. What we've said is, and I know it's so easy, everybody could say that. 
Really, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. Oh no, God's the most important thing in my life. No, no, nothing's more valuable, nothing's more important than God. The funny thing is, not funny, but I mean, money reveals that. It cuts through the words, it cuts through the speech, and it reveals whether or not he really is the, most, the greatest priority in our life. And when we say, no, God, you're the most important thing, Jesus says, really? Because if that's true, it should be reflected in your money because your money is a true indication of your heart. Okay, now let's wrap this up so we can go home and watch some playoff games. But here's what I think in the end. Here, here's the deal. What does this look like for us? What does this look I mean, just real practically, what does this look like for us? Because we don't have fruit trees, right? Like you're like, coming with, don't come with sheep and goats next week. That will, that will not help out. What does it look like for us today? See, the beauty of God's principles and plans are they stand the test of time, no matter whether culture shift, economy shift, currencies, mediums of exchange, the principle behind it still stands. Now, my guess is in 2010, many of you sat down to work out a budget. I don't know, I mean, at least I did. I'm assuming like most of you probably had goals in 2010 to become financially secure, pay off debt, whatever it is, and so you sat down to make out your budget. And here's my, maybe what you've done. you got the ledger sheet, you've got your pen, and what you do is your first item is what's the money coming in? What's my income? Whether it's my paycheck, my spouse's paycheck, whatever other income you got coming in, that's your income. You kind of write that total, and you know, hopefully it's a good total. Uh, and then after that, you go to the expenses. And so you start writing out things like this. Well, I've got the mortgage I've got to pay, so you know my mortgage company gets this, or it might be your rent, they get this. And then after that, you come to the utilities because I like electricity. Bless the Amish, but I don't plan on being a part of them. And so you got to pay those off. And so you write out your utility. Then you got your car. Then you got your insurance, food and groceries, clothing allowance, cell phones, vacation funds, credit card payments, whatever it is, education, all those things that go in. And then most people, what I find is after they work all that out and after they crunch the numbers to try to figure out what they have left, usually finally got nothing left. But if there is anything left, then out of that, they decide then what they can give to God. But you hear what happened in that process, right? And listen, I'm not trying to rebuke anybody. I'm telling you, I have lived this out. And this message is just for me as much as it's for anybody else because I've got debt in my life, and I can't tell you the pull and the temptation to think, boy, I could pay that debt. Lord, I can, if you just give me two years, I could pay this off, and then I could give you also. I mean, you, the justification that come in. I mean, I totally, I totally get that. But you hear the process, don't you? Where does God come in in that process? At the very end. At the scraps. At the leftovers. At the whatever I can finally spare at the end of the month, I might give this to you is the goodness of my heart. And God says, I, I want to be first, and I want to be best. Which means if we're following after Jesus, in my mind, practically the way that looks is sitting back down in 2010 with our budget once again and beginning here. God, what do we invest in the kingdom of God and the purposes of Jesus Christ? And we set that number. And again, he allows us to spend so much of his money on ourselves and on our standard living. He's really a good God like that. He's not asking for the most. He's not even asking for the greatest line item. He just wants to be the priority, meaning he wants to be first and best. And then out of that, we begin to construct the rest of the 2010 budget. And I think in that, that's how we honor God with first fruits. Because I think Jesus would say to us, if we're going to follow after him, one, we acknowledge he owns everything. We're just to be good stewards of that. And then two, God wants from us our first and our best because it reflects a heart that truly is devoted to him. So don't give him leftovers. He doesn't like leftovers. And it's a poor reflection of the heart. And Jesus makes it very clear. And when all the excuses come to mind, and I know I have heard them, I have said them, I have lived them. I think that story that Jesus starts out with, that poor widow, remember the poor widow who has nothing? That story kind of kicks out from us all of the excuses 
my encouragement to you this morning is, really, go just down-to-earth discipleship. Go home, get out your budget, and see whether it's reflecting that God is for you priority, that he is the greatest thing that he deserves, first and best. May God give you grace in the midst of it. May he give you peace in the midst of it. And I want you to know, as your pastor, I know our stories. This is why I don't like talking about money, because I know our stories. For some of you, when I said, you know, you first sit down and you write, like, what's the income coming in? For some of you at this moment, that's about a big fat goose egg at the moment. And I know full of that, uh, in that is full of insecurity and worry and anxiety. And what I want to say is God will provide, trust in him, have faith in him, and let's pray for God's favor that we could get to the place where that isn't the, the goose egg. And I know other stories where I'm trying to start a new life, and before I entered into Jesus Christ, this was the life that I lived, and as a consequence, I've got all of this debt, and you're trying to figure that out. And for others, it's the story of, feels like most of my paychecks going to my ex-wife and to my kids. I mean, I totally get our stories. And so I don't want you to hear this as some sort of a, I, mean, I get where we're, where we're at. But if I'm going to be a faithful minister of Jesus Christ, I've got to tell you that the Bible calls us to put God first and best. And in the midst of that, that he'll give us grace and peace. So can we pray for that? Let's pray, and then we're going to take up our offerings. So if you have it this morning, uh, there will be trays coming around to take up your offerings. But let's just pray and ask God's favor upon us that he give us a heart that truly reflects he is priority as that manifests in terms of money. Father, we give you thanks that you are such a good God. You're a generous God. You're a benevolent God. We say collectively here, we totally get that in comparison to the rest of the world, we are in the top 5% of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth. Even the poorest among us, we say we are still among the top 5% of the wealthiest in the world. And in that, we recognize that we have been blessed. And all we have to do is turn on the news to see different situations in different countries and Haiti and places like that to know that we get to live in a totally different state. That is purely because you are kind to us, you are gracious to us, and your providential care, you placed us here. What I'm asking, Lord, is, is based on your goodness and the favor you've placed upon us, the blessing you've given to us, we in turn will be a blessing to others. And in it will reflect hearts that love you and are fully devoted to you. I pray, Father, for wounds that have been created by money, for tension in relationships that's been created by money, for the end of marriages that have happened or marriages that are about to end because of money. I'm asking, Lord God, that you would come in and by the power of your spirit, you would bring about reconciliation and peace and forgiveness and grace. And for those right now, who really do walk through anxiety and pain and panic about money and feel like they have no money coming in, whether it's unemployment or for whatever reason, Lord, would you provide? Would you be the one who protects and sustains and sees us to another week? And would you open up doors of opportunity that those at this moment who have no job may find a job and it will be a, a great blessing and benefit to, to them and to their family? Lord, there's just a lot in this that feels tense and feels complicated and feels woundedness and we lift all that up to you. And even in this moment, as we give to you what rightfully belongs to you, to say, free our hearts from idols. Don't ever let money be that thing that captures our total allegiance. It only belongs to you. And help us as we walk after your son Jesus to live a life that indicates you really are first and you are best. And it's reflected in that. So receive our offerings. May it be used for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, it's a little different ending for us than most Sunday mornings, but it just feels like kind of moving out of the message into the tithes and offerings. In just a moment, we're going to be dismissed, and you're going to be free to go enjoy your afternoon. But before you leave, I do want to offer an invitation. If you came in here with something, 
really like a diagnosis this week, a broken relationship this week, or just this whole money deal. If you have something that you want to pray about, we have shepherds and intercessors, meaning just people who love to pray and are good at praying. Uh, they'll be down here up front. So as everyone else is leaving, I want to invite you to come up to the front rows here and spend some time with them, praying about whatever it is that you brought in with you. But you don't need to leave with that. So just leave free and in peace and allow God to work in your life in that way. So that's my invitation to you. Prayer down here front uh, if you need it. Let's stand together and let's receive a blessing. May the Lord bless you. May his favor rest upon you. And in that, may you be allowed to be a blessing to others. Full this week, full of opportunities for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.